Very good timing. Thank you all very much. Good morning. Glad to see you all. As we begin today, I want to make sure those of you who are going to the Women of St. Michael luncheon immediately following this, we end a little early on luncheon days, so you will have time to get downstairs and check in and get your food and all that good stuff. And so those of you joining us online, we usually end about 15 or so minutes early on these days. So I'm going to work a little faster than usual. And so as we get going, a reminder that we've got questions from last week I'm going to go over. If you've got questions, please be ready to ask them right now. And if you have questions that occur to you after the study, please email above or you can mention them in the social media chats so that we can address them next week. Last week I handed out a chart of sorts that compared John with the Synoptic Gospels. And if you did not get one, we've got some physical copies at the doors today. Bev also included a link in her email this week that will take you to the RBS page of our website. The handout is linked on that page. And so if you join us online, you can either get it from her email or you can go onto stmichael.org RBS and download that handout. And of course, questions about that are very welcome. In addition, if we've got other handouts, we'll do it the same way. We'll put the link to a PDF right on our website. So regardless of whenever you're listening to this, you should be able to go back to the site and find that handout. All right, let's jump in with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you with grateful hearts today and we ask that you open us up so that your spirit can fill us. As we study your word and the work of your followers throughout time, we ask that we join their ranks with faith and with courage to help build your kingdom here on earth. Be with all those we hold in our hearts and minds today, those who grieve, those who need your healing touch, those we love and see no longer. May everyone feel your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, gang, so we are back with the Gospel of John. A few questions from last week. We got many questions about the authorship of John, and they were asked in many different ways. And so I want to jump right in with the question of authorship. There are a lot of Johns all over the Bible, and it is not an uncommon name. And so we cannot simply say every John is the same person. And so we're going to start off with, there are Johns that you are likely familiar with, including John the Baptist. We're going to be talking about him today, and so I'm going to try my best to always say John the Baptist and not just John, because then you've got the Apostle John, you've got John the Evangelist, and you've got John of Patmos. Those four Johns are at least the four Johns we should be familiar with within kind of that first century. So again... John the Baptist, John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, and John of Patmos. Those are probably the four ones to remember. There are other Johns, maybe. We're not entirely sure. There could be, but we'll start with just those four. There are three groups of writings in the New Testament that are attributed to some John. You've got the Epistle letters, you've got the Gospel, and you've got Revelation. Traditionally, Everyone thought the same John, who was both the follower of Jesus and the beloved disciple, wrote the letters and the gospel and Revelation. That John would have been really old 
when he wrote all of those things. And so just biologically speaking, although certainly possible someone could have lived to about 100 at that time, it was just very uncommon. And so the idea that you would have the same person writing all of those things, very unlikely just biologically. In addition, if you look at the way the language is used, so all of these are written in Greek in some form, the Greek is different. It would be as if three of us wrote three different things. Any linguist could tell the difference between the authors. They were just not all written by the same person. The exception is the letters of John. The letters of John appear to have been written all by the same person. And so essentially we've got three groups of writings in the New Testament that were almost certainly written by three different people. Letters, Gospel, and Revelation. And so traditionally, we've discussed the letters as John the Evangelist, Revelation as John of Patmos, and then the Gospel is another John. Now, I say another John because it could potentially be that John the Evangelist began writing the Gospel of John and it was simply refined and finished by other people. That's possible. It could be that John the Apostle began writing the Gospel of John and it was refined and finished by other people later in the first century. Again, very possible. The most likely scenario is that John, the person who wrote the Gospel according to John, was writing a Gospel story literally according to John the Apostle or John the Beloved, as in a follower of that Apostle. And so I think I've said this to you before, in the first 30 or so years after Jesus's earthly ministry, there weren't a lot of people writing a lot of stuff. Yes, letters. That's where we get all the epistles. All the epistles were written back and forth to different communities who were all beginning to follow Jesus. But the idea of writing a story for posterity, that did not happen for a few decades, mostly because people interpreted Jesus as saying, you will see me return. That's it. And so all these apostles were like, we got to get to work. And so they fanned out all over the place and they started planting churches over here and telling the story of Jesus. And yes, they wrote back and forth to each other to try and answer questions. Paul certainly did that, but then other people did that, Peter and John and, and others. But it wasn't until that first generation of Jesus's followers who physically knew him began to die that people said, well, now, wait a minute. Maybe Jesus didn't mean like coming back right now. Maybe he meant coming back at some point soon, soon kind of in the cosmic sense. And so we need to write this stuff down. Those apostles would have all had disciples. So just a quick note, the difference between apostle and disciple is student and teacher. So all of the apostles that we know were disciples when they were learning from Jesus. Once Jesus was gone, they became apostles because they became teachers. They then had disciples and then on and on and on. It would have been that the apostles' disciples said, okay, well, if they're gone, we have to record their stories. And of course, those apostles would have been teaching their own disciples for years and years and years. So those apostles' disciples could have written the stories according to their teacher. Okay, sorry, I know that I just saw a couple people turned it like, I am not following this. Um, so, <laughs> you will note in your Bible, if it's done right, 
If you turn to the beginning of any gospel, it will say, the gospel according to, and then the name. It is not the gospel of, and then the name. Because it's not a gospel of that person, it's a gospel of Jesus. But it's the gospel of Jesus according to that person. So if you think of it in that regard, it could very well be that students of John the Apostle, having heard John's stories for years and years and years, wrote the story of Jesus according to their teacher, John. Does that make sense? Okay, I say all of that because we really don't know who wrote what. And it is almost certainly that many people contributed to any of the writings we have in total in our Bible. For most of our New Testament books, we don't have original copies because the idea of an original manuscript probably doesn't even exist with the exception of maybe a few of the letters. For much of what we have, we have copies of copies of copies that then was codified. So for each of these, and it's, it's different for every one of them, we can go back to a point at which we had a final manuscript that then is represented in the Bibles we all have today. That does not go back to a particular person who wrote it. It goes back to a particular group of people who had a particular copy that then we copied very carefully again and again and again until it's now printed in the 21st century. Does that make sense? So we just can't get too specific. So knowing that they were written probably by different people named John or even by people not named John but on behalf of a person named John is about as clear as it can get. So there you go. Any questions about authorship? Because that seemed to be the very number one interest from last week. Okay. Another question we got, which I think was, these I can probably do quite quickly. We got a question about the original translation of the Bible from Hebrew to Greek that I spoke of called the Septuagint. If you remember, six Hebrew scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel all got together. They translated the Bible independently, and it was a miracle. They were all the same. That's the Septuagint. The question was, do we, as we have created translations that are more and more accurate, are we learning more about the theology of the writings? That is a great question. And the answer is, of course, yes. Because as we refine the way that we translate language, more and more should be revealed to us about the nuance of that language. In many ways, logos is a great example. The word love is also a great example. For us, in English, there is one word that is, sorry, it's hard to say, you know, you can't define a word by its word, but the word word um, is only one word. Sorry, I don't know how else to say that. Um, and so word for us is just the singular word, but it can represent multiple different Greek words for word, depending on what the Greek person writing actually meant it to be. And so it's difficult for us in English to simply read the same word, word, and get the nuance of the difference. We all, I think, know this about love. In English, there is love. And in Greek, there are at least four different versions of the word love, depending on whether you mean romantic love 
or brotherly, sisterly love, familial love, and on and on. So you've got different ways of nuancing that. I mean, we even know this today. Like I know I, many uh, elementary school students always love to learn that there are how many different words for snow in the Inuit language, even though in English it's snow. So, because it depends. Is it hard snow, slick snow, soft snow? I mean, new snow, old snow? I mean, all that sort of stuff. When snow is in your life every day, you nuance. That's why Germans often are, have traditionally been so good at engineering, because they've got something like eight times more engineering words than we have in English. So they can be so much more specific about what they're discussing when they're discussing engineering, and on and on and on. So depending on the language, you can learn a lot about a people because if they have a very rich variety of words to describe a certain experience, then that experience was incredibly important to them versus a language where you don't have a lot of words for a particular experience. And so we have learned more and more about the nuance of the intent of the original authors as we've begun to parse out better and better translations. I say all of that but in English, all of those different versions of love still become love. And so if you, if you have a study Bible, oh, I should say that about Bibles too. If you only have a plain reader's Bible, it's okay. But just know that you will be limited in your ability to access the complexity of the original language. If you go get a big chunky study Bible, which probably the one I would recommend is the HarperCollins version of the NRSV, then what you will find are tons of footnotes. And when you get to a particular word in English with a footnote, at the very bottom, you'll be able to say, okay, so this word love in the original Greek was actually agape, or it was philia, or whatever it is. And so then you can begin to dig a bit deeper when Jesus uses the word love, which version is the writer attributing to Jesus in that moment? And then you can begin to parse things out in a very meaningful way. That's a lot, and it isn't really necessary, so long as you are generous with the way you read things. If you can resist being super legal and rigid, and we all know the traditions or the people, we've all got like that person in our life who uses passages of scripture like weapons to either limit or exclude or whatever. Don't do that. So long as you're not doing that, don't really worry about like what was the original Greek. It's not that important. But if you find yourself tempted to be being rigid or legalistic, I really encourage you to do yourself a favor and try to dig a little deeper because if, you're, if you cannot resist being rigid, you might as well try to be as accurate as possible in your rigidity. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Those are really our questions for this week. So unless you've got any that you have been holding and you did not write to me, any? Just based on last week's stuff? We'll finish chapter one. Yes, ma'am. I was having trouble some confusion about the word word. Mm-hmm. When you say Jesus comes to replace the word, what do you mean? He, you know, it's like he's talking to the rabbi 
Oh, when he says, I am the law. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, ooh, that's a good moment. That's a good stuff. So let's look, let's just talk for a minute about Logos once again, because it is just, it is so complicated. It's, it's never really done. I mean, people write volumes and volumes and volumes on this. And so any amount of minutes we spend in this room is not going to do it justice. So let's just try one more time. When John opens the gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay. When John says that, it is so significant. I mean, it is immense what John is saying in that one moment, because as we noted in the beginning, anyone raised with any Jewish knowledge at all would immediately think of Genesis in the beginning. That is not an accident. And so John immediately in three words, is making sure any reader knows this is cosmic. In the beginning was the word. Now, hold on. What do you mean, logos, the, that word? And of course, logos is the Greek word for word, but logos harkens back to the Septuagint translation of the word dabar in Hebrew, okay? So what that means is the people writing the Gospel of John use the Greek word logos, because a couple hundred years later, when the Hebrew was translated to Greek, they translated the Hebrew word dabar to logos. And so it's not necessarily that the writer of John really likes the word logos. I mean, he probably did, but whatever. That, that's not the point. The point is that logos is meant to immediately point back to God in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, dabar, which was the word is actually means spoken. We use the word word. And I think most of us probably think of a printed word on a page or a sign, like some kind of tangible word. When Hebrew uses the word debar, we may translate that as word, but what they really mean is something spoken, not something written because speaking is an action. Speaking manifests a word. A word does not, in a sense, exist until it is spoken. Now, I say spoken, it could also be written, but remember back in that period of time, it was a, a minuscule number of people were literate. And so no one's writing much at all. They're all speaking. And so words are only theoretical until they are physically spoken. And so God is described as physically speaking everything into existence. Nothing existed until God physically spoke it into existence. And so when you go back to Genesis 1 and then beyond, it, the entire creation narrative is anchored in this idea of God speaking or God breathing. There is a physical action that God is manifesting everything into being by speaking or breathing. And so when John opens up by saying, in the beginning was the word, what, God, what John is really saying is at the very beginning, one with God was who manifested everything into being. And so what we get there is this complexity because up to this point, God is just God. And in the first half of the first verse of John, we get this near Trinitarian representation of God in the three persons 
I'm not doing the Trinity today, so do not ask. So the Trinity is, makes no sense. It is not logical. Do not ask me to explain it to you because I cannot. Just simply know God is whole and God is in three parts. Three persons. And those three persons are essentially kind of the three facets of the one God. And you've got the God, that Father, that is kind of what we might think of as the omnipotent God. And then you've got God the Son, who is the Word, who is the active manifestation of God in the world. And then you've got the Spirit that is that sustaining presence that helps all of us remain connected to the divine whole God. Okay, that's all I got for you. So do not ask any questions. <laughs> all of this is introduced right at the beginning by using the word logos. So it's a huge weighty word when it connects all the way back to what has been understood by God, understood of God up to this point. Hmm. I think that's, I'm going to stop. So ponder that and let me know what else you want to ask because it's super helpful to say this again and again just differently and so ask away just not about the trinity okay <laughs> let's jump right in because we do not have a ton of time today i want to get through the rest of chapter one we got through the prologue last week i should note that I ran through the four big sections of the Gospel of John last week. You got a prologue and the epilogue, and then you got the book of signs and the book of works. Bove added that to her email yesterday. And so if you got her email, you got that basic four-part outline of the Gospel of John in writing. If you do not get her email, I would love for you to get her email. And so go on our website, send her a note, grab her after this, or write your name down here, make a note in the comment section. She'll make sure to give that to you in writing because that is not what. Okay, so people, did you get an email last week? Did you get an, hold on. Did you get an email last week? Did you get an email this week? Didn't you include that in the email? Yeah. Okay, so I would encourage you all to check the email again. Okay. Um, I saw it in my version. I'm thinking it's in yours. So check it again. Okay, so we did the prologue. So let's start... Chapter 1, verse 19. We've got three sections today. Well, really just two sections because I've already done the recap. We're going to talk about the testimony of John the Baptist. That's part one. And then the call of the first disciples, part two. Two nice easy parts so we can get to the luncheon. Okay. The testimony of John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 19. Let's read. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we'll stop there. John the Baptist actually plays a very prominent role in this first chapter. Even in the prologue, John is referenced multiple times. And then right after the prologue, we get an entire section dedicated just to John the Baptist. Now, it's easy for us to place John the Baptist in the big arc of the story because we know about John from the other Gospels. We know about John and being in the womb and leaping at the sound of Mary's voice when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, not in this Gospel. But we know it because we have the other Gospels. We know about John the Baptist going out and yelling at everyone, you know, down by the river and then baptizing Jesus. That's not in here either. So John, the Gospel of John, immediately puts John the Baptist as if we know all those other things. And there he seems to be very concerned about John the Baptist saying multiple times he is not the Messiah. This is because John the Baptist had a very committed following of disciples. John was super charismatic, weird, but he was very charismatic. And people would have come to him thinking that something new was happening. John really kind of appeared to be like the old prophets. So you had the weirdness of Elijah and Jeremiah and Elijah, I said that, Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these others, where the prophets would always go out in the middle of nowhere and start yelling and doing weird signs. And so John the Baptist is very much in that same vein where he goes out in the middle of nowhere, he starts to yell, and then he's baptizing people. Now, a note, baptism is not something completely devoid of Jewish roots. In Judaism, there was the understanding that one could be cleansed in a mikvah bath before going into the temple. So the idea of being cleansed in water was something very Jewish. But what John was doing was different. John was cleansing with water once. For the Jews, especially the most adherent Jews of the day, the cleansing of water was done every single time you wanted to do anything. Like you were almost immediately dirty again. I should say dirty, unclean again and had to be cleaned again and again and again and again. And what John was doing out in the Jordan River, John the Baptist, sorry, I'm going to try to say John the Baptist. What John the Baptist was doing out by the Jordan River was cleansing people once and for good. That is very different. And in a sense, what John the Baptist is doing out at the Jordan River is taking away the power and the control that the Jewish leaders had. Because if they had convinced everyone, the Jewish leaders had convinced everyone that they were unclean and could not come to the temple unless they were cleaned, and who controlled cleaning them? What they've done is they've created a problem, and they're the only ones that have the solution. And what John the Baptist is doing is taking that away from the Jewish leaders. In addition, because John the Baptist would have had lots of disciples, it is very probable that there were people after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension who would not commit to following Jesus because John the Baptist was so charismatic and powerful. And so it is likely that in the first century, there would have been disciples of Jesus and disciples of John the Baptist not always agreeing. 
And so my guess is, scholar, I shouldn't say my guess, scholars think that the Gospel of John is trying to cut that concern off right at the beginning. If you are a disciple of John the Baptist, you need to know that John the Baptist said many times over, he was not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist came to point to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. And they hit it again and again and again. You cannot get through the first verse without hearing it five times. And so what they did is they basically took this, Jesus' disciples would have taken this to John the Baptist's disciples and said, look, your teacher said it's not him. There is another dynamic here. In the Synoptic Gospels, in particular in Matthew and Luke, there is a point at which John the Baptist, after having gone to prison, begins to wonder if Jesus is actually the one. That story was probably known, even though it's not in the Gospel of John. That story was likely known. And so the Gospel of John is written without that story and with this hammer at the very beginning that John the Baptist says he is not the one. So you may have heard that John wondered about Jesus being the one, but he figured it out and he said, no, he is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And so that's why we get this heavy-handedness about John the Baptist at the very beginning refusing to acknowledge that he is anything special except to point to Jesus. As if you needed it to be reiterated, let's look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. What? There you get that reiteration of the word at the very beginning. John the Baptist seems to already understand that Jesus was prefigured as God's manifested voice, word, at the very beginning of time. John may be human, but Jesus here is well beyond that. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, if you saw a loop in redundancy there, that's not a mistake. John, the gospel writer, is making sure that everyone who hears from John the Baptist, disciple or not, knows that John the Baptist is pointing directly to Jesus. And so you hear twice, I myself did not know him. There's an amazing way of telling the story of John the Baptist here, as if John the Baptist, being such a prophet, still did not actually understand the fullness of Jesus. That was revealed to him as well. So if you all are reading this story for the first time or hearing someone tell you this story and thinking, how do I know? What John the Baptist story here is revealing to you is that you may not know yet. John the Baptist himself did not know yet. And so do not feel bad. 
it will be revealed to you. The truth will be revealed. Just as it was to John the Baptist, it will be for you. Mm, I don't have time to do the other thing I was going to do. Okay, any questions about John the Baptist? Because I want to get the disciples. Okay, good. Let's get to the call of the first disciples. If I were to tell you, if I were to ask you to tell me the story of the call of the first disciples, I'm going to bet, yeah, I might say not one of you in this room would tell the story this way because it's not the way we've been taught. If I were to say, tell me the story of Jesus calling the first disciples, all of us would say, well, they were fishing one day and Jesus walked by the water and they, Jesus called them and they jumped out of their boats and it was just this really nice moment. Not in John. It does not happen. And so let's look at the way that John tells the story of the calling of the first disciples and see if we can marry them. Verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, translated as anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. We'll stop there. The Gospel of John does not waste a bit of time getting way farther with the formation of the disciples than, say, Matthew, Luke, and Mark. The Synoptic Gospels tell this elegant story of over days and days and days. It takes a long time to get to the point where Jesus says to Simon, you are called Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Gospel of John is none of that. The Gospel says in almost the very first moment, Jesus sees Peter, that he is named Peter, not Simon. I mean, he's even referenced as Simon Peter first. And so it's as if the writer of John knows, everybody knows this story. Like everybody knows who Peter is. Why am I gonna rehash what you already know? I'm gonna tell you something different. And that might be a nice macro idea for us to hold as we go through this entire year. The gospel writer seems to know all the synoptic stories. And so rather than repeat those synoptic stories, the writer of the Gospel of John is trying to take those stories like a launching pad and give us a lot more theology around their meaning. And so right here, there is no fishing story. There's no boat. They're not at the lake. Nothing. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And as Jesus walks by again the next day, which might seem a little strange, but if you imagine, we think about traveling so easily, like we can go 30, 40 miles just for lunch, and it's no big deal. Back then, if you had gone from Jerusalem to the River Jordan, you're not going home again that day. You basically 
pitch a tent somewhere because that's a long journey. And you may go out to the Jordan River to see John the Baptist for days. And so Jesus didn't just swing by for an hour to get baptized. Jesus would have been there with a lot of other people living in a tent. And so when Jesus walks by John the next day, like he's walking by John a lot, it seems like, that's because his tent's probably over there. And so he just, he's coming down to the river and he probably, remember John's his cousin. It is very easy to imagine that Jesus and John would have like spent the summers together or something like that. So they were friends and they may not have seen each other for a while. And so Jesus may have been hanging out with John. I mean, they may have just like taken a walk down the river. I mean, we think of these people as if they're not real. But if you imagine that John the Baptist was probably living somewhere else Jesus was certainly living somewhere else. Jesus was probably up in Nazareth. John was probably down in Bethany. And then Jesus hears John's down by the river. He's like, let's go see John. And so Jesus goes and sees John. They're going to hang out for a few days because if you're going to make the trip, then you got to make it worth it. And so Jesus is hanging around John for a while. John says to two of his followers, Andrew and, this is important, some unnamed anonymous disciple who was never named, Go follow him. And why? Because this is the Lamb of God. What the the heck? I mean, the Lamb of God, what does that mean? Well, John has already gone back multiple references to prophets, and this is another. There is the prophetic tradition of lambs as sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so from the very beginning, the Gospel of John is teeing Jesus up as a human lamb, as a human sacrifice for our behalf. So this Christological understanding of Jesus as a sacrifice for our own good, we get that in John the entire time. We don't really get that in the synoptics. And so that's why I remember last week I said, if you're going to pick a verse and put it on your t-shirt, you'd probably pick John. It's because John gets the Christ of Jesus in a way that the synoptics really do not. John has spent a little bit more time mulling over the theological implications of Jesus of Nazareth, and he hits the ground running, trying to give a lot more theological depth to this man who is actually sent by God, who is himself God, who will be a sacrifice on our behalf to bring us closer to God. Everything is loaded right here in this first chapter in a way that we do not get in the other Gospels. It's important then to see that Andrew becomes this very first evangelist, in a sense. The way the story is told, the action of the story is that Andrew follows Jesus. Jesus says, come and see. Andrew comes and sees. And whatever he sees must have been pretty good because then he goes and finds his brother and tells him, I found him. I mean, he goes and he says to Simon, I have found the one we've been waiting for. And of course, Simon, in true Peter character, says, yeah, prove it. And so Peter goes, meets Jesus, and immediately sees whatever he sees, that Jesus is true. Then we pivot beyond that. Yes, I've got five minutes. Okay, come on. So... We have that happen with Andrew and Simon and the third unnamed disciple. Oh, I should say just one word. This other disciple of John the Baptist, that person has traditionally been understood to be the person who wrote this gospel. 
That's just a nice, helpful thing for you. Because if you're talking with a friend who's done Bible study for a long time and you say, well, you know what? My teacher said that this is not the same writer. And they're saying, of course it is. Then they're going to point to this unnamed disciple as being the person who knew Jesus, who followed Jesus, who wrote down the story. He's the gospel writer. There's nothing wrong with that. So be nice to your friend and say, okay. Um, but just know that that tradition is mostly not supported by any scholarly research anymore. But if someone says to you, yes, it's the same person, and you say, well, then who was it? This is likely where that person will point, the unnamed disciple. There's some kind of perceived humility to the writer not naming themselves. Whatever. Okay, just fun fact. Okay, now let's pivot on. We've got two more people coming in. So Andrew follows Jesus, goes find Simon Peter. Let's look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip and Andrew and Peter go back a bit. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is funny. I'm going to tell you why that's funny in a minute. <laughs> Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's start with what is the physical reality of this story so we can get some of the humor and some of the cryptic ways in which Jesus speaks. So first, the humor. We know Jesus is from Nazareth. If you go to Nazareth today, Nazareth is a decently large, bustling city. It was not 2,000 years ago. Nazareth was nothing. But it was next to the city of Cana. Now we know Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle. They're like sister cities. If you were from Cana, you were not from Nazareth, okay? It's kind of like being from Dallas, not Fort Worth, okay? <laughs> so we sort of know this, and the people can get snobby about it. And so Nathaniel is a Cana snob. That's what he is. Because we find out much later in the Gospel of John that Nathaniel's from Cana. Cana was much bigger than Nazareth. Neither were big. So this is really a silly kind of snobbery. But Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth like that dump? That's really what Nathaniel is saying. It doesn't make sense to us at all if we don't know the reality of Cana and Nazareth. That is such a nice melody. I don't know how many cell phones are going to have to go off before everyone's like, my cell phone will make noise. Okay, so then we move on, and when Nathaniel meets Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, here's someone without deceit. Now, Jesus has never, Nathaniel has never seen Jesus. And so when Jesus says something so weird to him, he says, how do you know me? And then Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, if we do not grasp what is happening here, we'll miss that 
Jesus just told Nathanael he saw him, but not physically saw him. Nathanael was somewhere by himself, sitting under a tree. Philip found him and told him to come and meet Jesus. Jesus just told Nathanael, I saw you there, not physically. There is this spiritual seeing happening in this moment. And Nathanael's response to Jesus is almost like disbelief because Nathanael knew he was by himself. Nathanael knew wherever he had found this fig tree and was sitting under it, it probably took Philip a minute to find him. So that Jesus saw him there, Jesus did not see him with his eyes. Jesus saw him in that spiritual sense. And Nathanael is totally smacked. He has no idea who this man is. And so his phenomenal response to Jesus has a little bit more, makes a little more sense to us when we realize that it's not as if Jesus looked over there and saw Nathanael under the fig tree. No, Nathanael was by himself. And Jesus just told Nathanael something about him that stunned him. This is very much woman at the well kind of moment where, you know, she runs off and she says, he told me everything about myself. When you meet someone who shouldn't know you and yet they seem to know everything about you, it can be a shock. And Nathaniel's shock is manifested in a profound statement of faith. Nathaniel, there is no way Nathaniel actually said these words. That is not the point. What the writer of John is doing is he is taking whatever Nathaniel said, which was probably something like, holy crap, you're awesome. I mean, it was something like that. <laughs> whatever Nathaniel said that changed his life, John is now taking and making a theological statement. In a sense, the writer of John is saying what Nathaniel sensed was this. He may not have had the words to say it, but he knew this was true. That's as far as I can get today because I know we've got to stop. I'm going to finish the story next week because part of what Jesus says here harkens back to multiple different Old Testament moments. And we'll unpack all of this like Jacob's Ladder and more when we start next week. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.